Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 312 of the Fun With Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcast, or episode 46 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who mistakenly agreed to take a shot whenever there was a virtual or actual safety car or a red flag at the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, and is still fighting a hangover, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. Yeah, Formula One drinking games. That would be uh, that'd be quite good fun, actually. Maybe we should organise one for the finale. <laughs> Maybe so. It is Tuesday afternoon, December 7th, and Chris and I are going to talk about the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. And I have an interview with Porsche ambassador Patrick Long. Um, until very recently, Porsche factory driver Patrick Long, but we'll talk about more of that later. Um, first, before we get into the race itself... Chris, do you have any Formula One news to discuss? Nothing of any importance. I think we should talk about the race. Well, this is going to be a short podcast because it was such a snoozer of a race. So little happened. I mean, Lewis Hamilton started on pole, won the race, and that was that, right? Yeah, pretty much. There was nothing really to talk about throughout the weekend. The track was dull, wasn't it? And uh, qualifying yeah, was so-so. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, okay, how do we, I don't even know, there's so, this was the pot boiling over, just like so many of us had predicted for a long time now, and this was the pot boiling over between the drivers, between the teams, between everything else, but this whole thing started at a 3.8 mile long street course that has approaching 30 corners, everything about what happened this past weekend is totally bizarre. I mean, how do you wrap your head around it? It, it was an extraordinary racetrack, wasn't it? You know, it was so fast. I mean, some of the onboard footage from the various drivers shows, you know, the huge commitment required to drive an F1 car around a track like that. Um, there were, you know, some big, big crashes. Fortunately, no one was injured. Uh, the barrier design with a safer, you know, barriers seem to work well but yeah it's it's um it's quite a street course i think what they were talking about wide open throttle percentages and i think it was second or third most of on the calendar this year uh, i think it definitely second after monza <laughs> that's pretty crazy for a street course that's absolutely insane that means they're on the that means they're on the throttle more than they are at spa that means they're on the throttle more than they are at coda that has a one-kilometer straight, more than Baku, which has that huge straight, you know, the second half of the course is basically one long straight away. So, yeah, it's, it's – and I, I think realistically you're absolutely right. We're lucky no one got injured, but, I mean, fundamental safety, it's questionable here. Yeah, it's funny. When I tuned in for some of the free practice on Friday just to get a sense of the track – and I looked at turn one and I thought to myself, wow, that looks really tight. That's going to cause some problems. And uh, yeah, sure enough, it did. <laughs> yeah, well, we had free practice two, I believe it was. Charles Leclerc had a fairly sizable shunt. We had several issues in um, the Formula Two racing. Uh, obviously, there was a shunt or two in qualifying that's worth discussing. Uh, th this place not only... Was it hypothetically to the edge? Uh, you know, it was very actually, and several people went beyond it. 
Yeah, I, th- I think we need to talk a little bit about quality, don't we? Uh, you know, it was it was well, interesting. There's more than a little talk about it qualifying. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, most people expected going into the weekend that Mercedes would have an advantage at this track uh, given their performance in Brazil, and obviously, as we've discussed, being a high-speed uh, street course. But it didn't really work out that way. Red Bull, uh, and particularly obviously Max's hands, had a really good quality setup. And, Ma- and Lewis looked on the back foot right f- through Q1 and Q2, frankly. Um, and it, it looked really like, you know, Max was, was going to just steamroller his way to pole position. And he almost did, to be fair to him. Um, yeah, a couple corners shy of it. That was one of the most committed... Max's Q2, sorry, Q3 second run was one of the most committed laps I've ever seen. I mean, it was extraordinary. All the way through, I thought he's going to hit something here, um, but yet somehow was keeping it, you know, out of the wall and carrying huge speed. And it did look like a mega, mega lap. He just, uh, he just had that slight lockup on the front left going into the final turn, which which ruined him. all his all his good work, unfortunately. And uh, it meant he only started third on the grid, but uh, it was a phenomenal to watch but there is a lot to talk about there just as you were saying you know Valtteri in Q1 had a leg up on uh, Hamilton you know Hamilton set a really strong uh, early Q3 time and Botas was not far behind him a tenth behind and that's what set the tone for that almost epic Q3 well it was an epic Q3 lap it just wasn't quite the quite at the right side of Epic, I suppose you could say. But we also had Charles Leclerc recover from a pretty massive accident in free practice two to put the Ferrari fourth on the grid. Sergio Perez was a bit farther behind in fifth. And, um, you know, Pierre Gasly, again, very strong top 10 run for him um, before we got to the McLarens. But Nikita Mazepin was a second off of Mick Schumacher, who was a tenth off of Lance Stroll, who was a few tenths off of Sebastian Vettel. It was um, nearly a second and a half between 20th and 17th, um, and a second of that was from Nikita Mazepin. Yeah, Schumacher had a strong qualifying. Uh, That's a much bigger gap than usual between him and his teammate. Um, His race didn't go quite so well, mind you, but uh, strong qualifying. There were a few notable, you know, shunts and moments. We talked about uh, a couple of them, but already. But uh, you know, Carlos Sainz had a really, a really ragged qualifying session, didn't he? I mean, yeah. uh, scraping the wall with his rear wing, uh, which damaged it, necessitating him to do his final Q2 effort with a with with that damage, uh, which was ultimately unsuccessful. Lewis having, you know, a huge moment in his Q3 first run, uh, which forced him to abort that that lap and his second lap was. Wasn't, wasn't particularly good. He was four tenths behind uh, Verstappen after the first uh, first runs in Q3. So, yeah, I mean, it was you could see the, the it was it was a hard track to really extract the maximum performance from, you know. And and uh, you know, some drivers did it better than others. Yeah, and that's that's really what you want. You want a racetrack that that allows you to see the difference in in levels between these top guys, don't you? I mean, if they're all just circulating as if they're on rails and and the the margins are uh, very very slim it's harder to discern the the quality and driver difference but that track certainly uh, visually was able to give us give us an understanding of who's really on it true but 
<laughs> There's ways to do that without being quite so dangerous, don't you think? There's aspects of this track that were great and the fact that it was a news track and we didn't have data on the track for teams to build up, you know, perfected simulator runs and have all these other things that really help narrow it in, nor did Pirelli have foundational um, data to give a better understanding of tire. So there were a lot more unknowns in this particular Grand Prix and that did absolutely affect it, it did affect the lap times that we saw and strategies and all that. But a couple of tweaks and we could have had a couple of gnarly unhealthy accidents here. That's I mean, I'm I'm not trying to beat this beat this to the ground, but I do feel like it's worth saying that it, there are some bright yellow flags, if not red flags, about the safety of this place. I think one of the biggest criticisms was that some of the the long sweeping curves that essentially were being taken flat out, you basically got curved straights. And because of the proximity of the wall to the edge of the track, it meant that they were largely blind. So you're having to commit um, to these these turns at full, you know, full full power, not knowing if really something you know, dangerous is lurking around the corner. Um, and, you know, when you do have a shunt, obviously they, they put the flags out quickly, but sometimes that the, the marshals or the, the light system may not be quick enough to react. Um, you know, we saw a pretty nasty shunt between Charles and Sergio that then caused a chain reaction in the race. And um, that was actually on a straight part of the track. But yeah, I mean, maybe there's some some lessons that can be learned for next year. Maybe they can, they can tweak the, the layout a little bit to some degree. Um, but... I don't know. I quite enjoyed it. And no well, one got go. hurt. So <laughs> No one got hurt. That is definitely the best thing. The fact that it's fast is cool. Um, the fact that half the corners are actually flat out and effectively straight less cool to me kind of starts defeating the point. But there were some positives, certainly. And it, the race wasn't boring. Uh, <laughs> so um, let's go ahead and get into the race. Uh, there were uh, – we had Lewis Hamilton – and Valtteri Botas sitting first and second, Max Verstappen in third with a repaired car. Very lucky that he did not have to change out his gearbox and take a five-place grid penalty as a result. There was a lot of nervousness uh, among many that uh, Verstappen being on the clean side of the track and showing to be quite adept at braking quite late and still getting through turn one, lap one, that we were going to see... Max just run away with this thing all over again. Not the case at all. Both Lewis and Valtteri covered and held their positions 1-2 through turn 1 for the first few laps. And indeed, all the way almost the first 10 laps, I think, it turned out to be kind of going textbook for Mercedes. Hamilton in front, slowly building a gap. Valtteri Botas in second, holding off Verstappen without too much trouble. And Everything seemed fine. I mean, what did you make of the start of the race? Yeah, it was it was relatively straightforward, wasn't it? Um, Max wasn't able. I don't think he got particularly a great start. Uh, wasn't able to put them under either the Mercedes under a significant pressure. Um, and then Hamilton appeared to just be running to whatever lap target time he was given to preserve the medium tires, um, and they had it completely under control. It seemed. You know, it looked like the Mercedes had been set up more for race pace than quality pace. 
and now they they were in front. It looked like you know it was going to be a straightforward afternoon initially, and then you know even when we had Schumacher's crash, which initially brought out a safety car, you know Mercedes decided to pit both uh, Lewis and Valtteri um, to get them onto the hard tire, and they came out in second and third place right behind Verstappen, who decided not to pit. So it looked like at this stage of the race, that it was it was going to go perfectly to plan for Mercedes, that they were now a pit stop up, and they were in total control. But then the fairly controversial decision was made to, to, bring, to actually stop the race, to bring out the red flag in order to effectively uh, repair the barrier. And that, you know, controversially allowed all of the runners who hadn't stopped to then change their tyres and, importantly, keep the track position uh, that they'd uh, inherited when they had elected not to stop under the safety car. And there were some big, big losers in this situation. And I think that's a rule that really needs to be reviewed quite quickly because poor old Lando tumbled down to 16th um, based, on, based on the fact that he'd pitted under the safety car and then there was a red flag. So he, he really was a massive loser in, in you know, and it, he would have lost track position anyway but at least he would have known that the cars ahead of him would have to stop at some point but now they all changed their tires they, they had no need to do so so you know it, that rule i don't really understand it do you understand why they get a free tire change when there's a red flag well you know it's tough because well, firstly i want to quickly say mick schumacher he was on his own just lost rear of the car and he was totally fine um that's what caused it, it was not a particularly heavy shunt and the safer barrier looked like it absorbed it exactly as it was expected to so it was a fairly big surprise that the red flag was called um i think it was explained pretty matter-of-factly that the safer barrier that schumacher impacted was damaged in such a way that it had to be replaced and replacing that under yellow flag conditions just isn't tenable i think it's the number of yellow flag laps you'd be under in addition to uh, the safety of the crew, et cetera, et cetera. But to your initial question, it's tough because this rule has been in place for quite a while, as far as I can remember, and it hasn't been an issue in the past. It's it's this set of particular circumstances, you know, led to what proved to be controversial. But there's so many times when there's been red flags and you're allowed to replace parts like for like, and you're allowed to change tires, et cetera, et cetera, and it's never come up. It, it's been controversial in the sense that um, I believe it was Spa where Sergio Perez basically got got a do-over practically um, after uh, on the on the formation, not the formation lap even, just like the lap to take his grid spot ahead of Spa where he lost and damaged the car, and they were rep- able to repair it and get the car out there, right? So there's controversy around red flag, but the changing tire bed has never been an issue until this set of circumstances come up, and I'm not exactly sure there's a clean way to fix it. Yeah, I mean, obviously you get some red flags due to weather. So, you know, if the track goes from dry to, to very heavy rain, and they feel that you know the conditions are so poor they can't continue to race then they red flag it and then it obviously makes sense to allow people to change tires because now if it's wet 
um, you don't want them going back out on slicks. So there's some circumstances where it makes sense to allow a free tire change. Also, if there's been a lot of track debris, uh, you know, big shunt, and they've needed to, to clean it up, and there's a chance that there could be uh, some cuts in the tire, then, then I guess, again, it makes sense to allow some flexibility around tire changing. But to me, it would be possible to allow people to change tire when they can provide evidence that they're, they're losing pressure in the tire rather than a, just a free tire change. Um, and in the case of Schumacher's accident, there wasn't a lot of debris on the track anyway. So you could then, you know, to me, the stewards or Michael Massey could say, well, OK, we're doing a red flag, but there's going to be no tire changes allowed. You know, there should be some, rather than just blanket rule for red flags, there should be some nuance to it. And um, that way, I mean, and I agree with you, there's some very unique situation here with the fact that, first of all, you had a safety car, then a red flag. And that oftentimes isn't the case. You know, normally yep. it just goes straight to a red. It is odd, but that it was very unsatisfactory how the grid got reshuffled so, so dramatically. And the fact that, you know, some people were now on tyres. I mean, I think it would have been a more interesting spectacle lower down the order if we'd, we'd had people still having to come in and pit or try and manage you know, uh, heavily degraded tyres during the race. Um, but anyway, you know, it, 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 some people benefited, some people got unlucky. And, and in, that, in the closely watched, you know, McLaren-Ferrari battle and Norris and Leclerc battle, uh, that really, really hurt Lando's chances. I mean, he ended up, as I said, down as 16th. He managed to recover to 10th, but, but that really killed his race right there. Yeah, uh- and I and I agree with your assessments. And in this specific case, there were definitely some things that seemed a bit unfortunate the way it worked out. But at the same time, you look back, there's so much luck in motorsport, ultimately. And there's times you get lucky and there's times you get unlucky. To a certain extent, you just accept that sometimes you get unlucky. You know, I, I it's easy for me to say as someone that wasn't, stricken by that uh, bad luck personally but uh i for the rule book is already so thick <laughs> another part of that rule book there was all this converse, controversy about was hamilton not respecting the 10 car links rule and all this kind of stuff and it was like well that wasn't a formation lap i'm talking about the re the the restanding starts after the red flags it was well hamilton wasn't respecting 10 car links well that's for formation lap not or no, I'm sorry, that's for, see, now I'm getting it confused. But because it was a lap to get ready for another standing start, that rule didn't count for that circumstance. So there was already confusion about all these little nuanced things of when one thing can be done and not another. I just really love adding as much simplicity as possible. Like if, if Colin Chapman were to write the rules, um, adding another nuance here would not be adding lightness. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, it, it certainly seems to be something that that's worth revisiting. Maybe it doesn't require more rules. Maybe you just eliminate the option to replace tires. <laughs> that's a possibility, but, you know, and, and then you get into some really er- interesting circumstances when uh, it's red flag due to weather and you're like, sorry, nope. Everyone's got to go out there on their slicks. And then change those on rain tires under yellow. That, that would be fascinating. 
And you say, well, you make an exception for that. But then you start adding circumstances and all of a sudden you're, you're in this complex weave of things again. But to, to go on about, uh, to, to just come back at uh, the point about Hamilton being 10 yeah. car lengths behind. I mean, I think this yeah. is where the paranoia started to, to build because so effectively what we had now was a restart of the race, everyone on brand new tires. But now we've got Verstappen on pole. And I think Hamilton was r- rather irked by that fact, you know, and particularly with the decision to pull the red flag. And so I think he was, you know, he'd already decided, well, he was going to do what, whatever he could to try and, uh, you know, get back out into the, into the lead and, and, uh, and felt hard done by, by, by the chain of events that had occurred. Um, and this seemed to build on both sides of Mercedes and Red Bull and, and Hamilton and Verstappen as the race wore on. It was just an upping of stakes with people who felt they were being hard done by and the rules were being misapplied or penalties were being, you know, unfairly handed out. Um, so, you know, but you're right. We now get to a point where we have our second full race restart um, with Verstappen on pole, Hamilton uh, in second. And Hamilton has a phenomenal launch from his second position and uh, clearly has won the corner oh, drives so off clearly so clearly <laughs> you, you you're being sarcastic or you agree with me i mean no, i'm agreeing corner. with you yeah, <laughs> yeah no i'm very much agreeing with you so verstappen just does the most extraordinary thing he just drives across the <laughs> across the uh the corner completely misses the actual on track portion of the corner runs across the the painted surface beyond the curbing and, and then, you know, has to has to go slowly to rejoin the track, holding up Hamilton, allowing Ocon to uh, cruise into into second place. Um, and, you know, just the most outrageous maneuver I've ever seen. Honestly, it was incredible. Yeah, that that is infuriating nonsense to me. That's not racing. That's demolition derby. I, I don't. I, this is what really makes me just drives me crazy because he didn't make the corner. This wasn't uncompromising. This was just this just wasn't racing on the racetrack. Now you could go back to some like real core fundamental truths about where are racing boundaries and how are they established. Because when you just paint a white line on a big chunk of tarmac and say that's the end of the racetrack. But grip levels don't change and everything else. So you can make these ridiculous maneuvers. He can go whatever it was, 20, 30K above what actual apex speed he could make and uh, kilometers an hour when I say K and just completely misses the corner. And if uh, Hamilton doesn't avoid that, then he just gets collected. So be it. But if it were a real racetrack where there was grass at the edge of the corner, that wouldn't happen. He wouldn't be able to do that. So now that's... That's going. That's peeling back a few layers of the onion and getting into like real fundamental conversations about Formula One and racetracks and those types of things. But I, it is just, I do want to at least briefly mention if we had real proper track limits, you wouldn't see that because you couldn't do that. Given the fact that we can do that, to me, it's absolutely absurd that that's not completely against the rules. To just completely fly off the racetrack. This was the same thing that happened at Brazil. Verstappen just carried way too much speed and didn't make the corner. How is that allowed? That's, I, don't, I don't even understand how that's debatable. 
Well, I agree with you. I don't understand why this is debatable because the, the, the closest corner I can think of on the, on the F1 circuit, circuits that we visit that has a similar nature to that corner is Monaco. So the chicane at the end of the tunnel in Monaco, you have a very similar situation where you have a left-right chicane, but it's, you're able to cut across it if, you, if you've come out of the tunnel carrying too much speed. Now, all the drivers, we see it every year at Monaco where there'll be a few drivers that will will cut that chicane and they all recognize that they have to concede whatever position they've gained by cutting across the chicane. It's not debated. It's just a fact. So why do we think that the, that rule has changed? Because we're in uh, in a championship battle and we're on a new street course that, that has a slightly different uh, geography. It's identical. It's an identical situation. And it's absurd we're even talking about the validity of that maneuver because obviously it wasn't valid. And I don't even think... Red Bull argued too much about the penalty that was then meted out because, of course, we then we didn't get very far. We we then had the big shunt between Perez, Leclerc, uh, Russell, and, all this, exactly and, and, right. yeah, Mazapan. So the the race got stopped again. We had another red flag, which was more logical to have a red flag this time. And then well, we get and into it was this, immediately a red flag. It wasn't. It wasn't. That's this right. Yellow for a few laps, then red. <laughs> exactly. Well, the, the track was completely blocked, wasn't it? Effectively, but. Red Bull admitted that the driver was at fault, and it was agreed to to reorganise the starting order for the for the second restart uh, to put Ocon on pole and Max behind Lewis. So, you know, they they, they accepted that 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 manoeuvre was outrageous, but it just kind of, to me, it it just it put us in sort of Max's mindset which was win at all costs effectively that he was going to do what it what it took to get in the lead if it if it sort of took lewis out well never mind i still have an eight point lead going into the final round kind of attitude that's how i interpreted it it was going to be you know i'm I'm happy to go to the limit and beyond i'm not aiming my car at my opponent but i'm certainly going to going to do what what it takes and use whatever part of the track or off the track necessary to get in the lead that's that's how i interpreted his driving how about you I, yes, but let me get into – that's what frustrated me more than anything about the FIA. There was this back and forth going on after the second red flag of who's going to start where. And it was – there was this negotiation going on between Michael Massey and Red Bull Racing about what was acceptable. And this was infuriating me. Why is this being discussed with one of the two teams, with the with the person that caused – you know, the person that had this controversy go on and then they very lucky to have an accident happen behind him. But how is it fair for the FIA sporting director to go back and forth with the team that we all know was not playing within the boundaries of the rules, at least as I understand them, that they get any kind of discussion about where you're going to start and where not? That was all absurd. And you get into this whole big weird mashup of, okay... If Verstappen hadn't done what he hadn't done, Ocon would not also would have not had the opportunity to take the lead. But at the same time, Ocon did absolutely nothing wrong. So why should he be punished for good decision making on his point and being towards the front to take advantage of this? So there's all that back and forth. But there was this thing going on that they were discussing, negotiating almost about where the Red Bull would start as to avoid sending it to the stewards. To me, that was the most absurd part of all of this. 
the stewards should look at it and determine what the rules were. I, that that was my takeaway first and foremost. So I think it it was easy to, with the language being used by Massey in particular, to think it was some sort of negotiation. But I think the reality was more, you know, we, we don't want this to go to the stewards and, 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 a, and a more severe penalty to be handed out that could really, you know, kill Max's opportunities here. So why don't we just fix it at the red flag restart and Max is going to start behind Lewis? Because what, you know, what would have happened if, if the race had continued would have been that Max would have had to, to give up the place to Lewis or accept some other penalty, whether that was a five or 10 second, you know, uh, timed penalty either in his next pit stop or at the end of his total race time. But, you know, those are basically the, the typical penalties meted out. So because the race got stopped, they wanted to try and address it there and then. And that was one way to do it. I think it wasn't really a negotiation. I don't think Massey was giving Red Bull an opportunity to opt out or, or adjust that. I think it was more of an either or. Either you, you start behind Lewis at the restart or it goes to the stewards and, you, you, you know, take your chances, which is, you know, as I said, probably a more severe penalty. Yeah, I think the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, the, some of the transmissions that are being relayed between the teams and the FAI probably shouldn't be, quite honestly. I don't think it well, helps the credibility of the sport and be, the decision-making. That might be the fair, the best point you've made yet. Yeah, no, I, 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 that's fair. But, okay, it, it, it certainly, Max starting behind Hamilton in that circumstance is better than nothing, uh, but at the same time, I was just watching these, the frustrated frustration of the respect given among the drivers here in Formula One versus other forms of motorsport was what was really getting under my skin. So anyway, we have our third race start. And go ahead and describe that one, Chris. Yeah, so Ocon's on pole. We've got Lewis in second, Verstappen in third. Everyone gets a reasonable start. Ocon is on the right-hand side for the left-hander. Lewis is is lining up to dive down the inside, but hasn't moved to the left of the track. And, and Verstappen pulled off, honestly, a phenomenal move. I mean, he was, again, super committed, dived down the inside. There was a car's width uh, that was left open by Hamilton. And he took the opportunity and pulled off a fabulous overtake, you know, perfectly legitimately using, you know, fully on track, Again, you know, it was one of those maneuvers where if, if Lewis had turned in, they would have collided. And obviously that, that wasn't a huge concern to Max. But again, he, he, he certainly didn't touch Lewis. Uh, it was a super clean pass and it was a phenomenal move. And it just sort of, you know, you take that brilliance and compare it to the laughable, you know, schoolboy effort he'd done the previous start. And it's like, you know, this guy is like a Jekyll and Hyde character of a racing driver in this race sublime and ridiculous within a few minutes of each other and it was just but it was a, a wonderful overtake I, I you know i give him full credit for it yeah no it it was and i was honestly more than anything just so surprised that hamilton left the door open just as botas did i believe at the mexican grand prix was it and yeah. uh, and it was just like well of course verstappen is not mysterious no matter where you fall on Verstappen, he's not mysterious. He's pretty open book about what he's going to do. He's opportunistic. He will take that chance. Why did you give him such a wide opening to do that? That's what can, 
confused me. I mean, maybe Hamilton didn't want to compromise his corner entry too much, which would compromise his exit, which would make a more vulnerable to be overtaken at the end. But I mean, God, I was pretty surprised by Hamilton not covering more of the inside earlier. Yeah, I completely agree. It was a big mistake from Lewis. He seemed more focused on making the pass on Ocon than, than trying to, to stop Verstappen. You know, he was, there was no doubt that he was going to pass Ocon relatively easily uh, later on in the lap. If he just focused on blocking Verstappen and coming out of the corner ahead of him, I think he would have been in a, you know, would have had an easier afternoon again. Yeah, I don't understand why he left the door that wide. Um, and uh, yeah, if there's a car's width, or even maybe if there's not quite a cast where the Verstappen will go down there. Yeah, so, yeah. And Lewis don't was lucky. Him, don't give him any opportunity to think that there's an opportunity. Right. And so Lewis and, and Ocon actually, you know, touched. And that was the first time Lewis's front wing got damaged. Uh, not that severely in this instance, but he could have, you know, could have been unlucky and lost his front wing in that move, which would have been, you know, super costly for his title ambitions. So... Uh, he was a little fortunate to to escape um, that uh, restart without you know a significant problem with his car. Um, but you know even even without that, you know he was now behind Verstappen again. And yet all of this discussion that we just had is merely an appetizer. <laughs> That's what's crazy about this race was that it was like a a store closing sale everything must go all the controversy 50 percent off and here we are uh we've got another controversial defense very very controversial defense from verstappen when um hamilton makes an attempt i think that was turn one again um yep in the race 37 yep yeah and so it's been this is just truly bizarre on all levels and we're going to have to break this part a little bit. Verstappen is told, let Hamilton go. Oh, hang on. Verst- no, 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 no. No, you got to describe, you got to okay. describe go what happens, no, right? Please, please go ahead. So there's three DRS zones at the track. So Hamilton's now benefited from his third burst of DRS on the start, finish straight. You know, he's got a run on, on Verstappen. He goes to the outside because uh, Max is, is covering the inside fairly early on. You know, he's clearly ahead Again, going into the corner. I think even um, farther ahead than the last time. Right. And and so Max just decides, obviously, to forget about his breaking point and, and just barrels into turn one way late on the brakes, forcing, you know, uh, uh, Hamilton to have to stay on the outside of him. And halfway through the turn, Max is so out of control. You know, he's fully... Um, oversteering he's got opposite lock on they're both having to go you know max is then going up over the curb again cutting across the turn one chicane and of course lewis has got nowhere to go either either turns into max or he has to stay on the outside of him and cut the corner as well again you know very that this is the incident that's even more similar to to brazil where max has just decided i'm not going to break until you know lewis breaks and therefore carry far too much speed into the turn and you know, that's just not acceptable. It's just not acceptable. And, you know, they come out of the turn. Max holds on to onto the lead. And he, at this point, he is told, you've got to give the place back to Lewis. Now, before we talk about what then happens, if you listen to Max's post-race interviews, he thinks that's a legitimate defense. 
And he basically said, well, I went off the track, yeah, but so did Lewis. I mean, what world is he living in where he thinks that's yeah. acceptable? It's, it's he really... caused Lewis to go off the track. It, Lewis was Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's insanity. Now, I, I, and again, this is it just broils me because I keep bringing this up. I know this, but you you just would not see this in any car. They would someone would absolutely get thrown the f out for that. It just and there's just inherently so much more respect. Inherently, drivers wouldn't do that to each other in the first place. And it's not about racing hard. It's about just understanding that there's but one piece of track and it has to be shared. If someone's there, you can't just push them off. It's not bumper cars. Yeah, we got to a point where certain drivers are unwilling to concede the corner, even when clearly they, they should do so. And for me, the definition of racing has always been that, you know, ideally you get a situation where two drivers are very even and one will pass the other in a quarter, but then the other comes back and passes him again at the next turn, right? And you end up with these wonderful situations where you have multiple passing through the whole lap. That's that's gone. Now we have this completely binary approach where I'm either going to, to keep the corner or I'm going to crash with you, right? It's your decision. And that's not racing. That's just absurdity. It's bump, as you said earlier, it's bumper cars. Right. What I would have preferred to see Max do is admit that Lewis had that turn and then try and get in his draft and take him. You know, the, the Red Bull was working really well around the first sector of the lap. You know, get in his slipstream, try and get him back around, later around the lap. That's what I want to see is great racing, but not not what we saw there. Not this not this. I'm just going to dive in and we either crash or I end up still leading. That's that's not acceptable. So we get to the point where Verstappen is told to let Lewis by. Yeah. Definitely, <laughs> clearly starts slowing down. Hang on, hang on. He waits He waits for almost two-thirds of the lap before he slows well, down. Fine, 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 fine. You're right. It, it, real respect would have been that short straightaway afterward, let him right by. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But we're, we're way beyond that. <laughs> yeah, right. So we're, he, he's slowing down, clearly slowing down. Why didn't Lewis just rocket right by him? I'm so confused why Lewis slowed down with Max initially. There's a whole lot of weird things that happen on with slowing down, speeding up again, slowing down more, all these kinds of, and like in the details, who has access to telemetry and how the, all that's going. But just in that moment, why didn't Lewis just shoot right by him right then and there? That's what I'm so confused by. Well, so I think there's a few things going on here. So first of all, Red Bull told Max to give the, the place back to Lewis. But he, you know, there was, a, there was a delay in communicating that to him. And obviously Red Bull was in communication with, the, with, with Massey, who basically yeah, said you have to give the place to Lewis. Um, so there's a time delay there. So that maybe explains why Max took a while to give the place back. But he should have known that what he'd, been, what he'd done was illegal and therefore given the place back on his own initiative. But he didn't. But then you get the situation where... Uh, we'd had a number of virtual safety cars. And so, you know, it wasn't unusual for Max to suddenly slow up. And of course, if you pass under a VSC, then you get huge penalties. So Lewis had already had a couple of VSC situations where he'd had to slow down because Max was slowing down because there was a VSC. So that complicates it. Then Lewis wasn't informed that Max was going to give the place to him. So he wasn't, you know, waiting or or expecting uh, Verstappen to give him the place back. And then here's the fascinating thing for me, despite 
Verstappen's own explanation of the event, he's not on the right-hand side of the track. He's in the middle of the track. And in fact, he's moving to the left at the moment where he breaks most suddenly. So it's not like he's moving over and, and slowing down. He's sort of just slowing down in the middle of the track and weaving slightly. And that's what is really odd about what he did. And, and to me, there's so many ways you could allow someone to pass. But, but what was going on was this effort to, to allow Lewis to pass right before the DRS detection zone. So therefore, Max would have DRS for the next straight. So this was what the strategic element of the letting him pass was all about, that you let him pass in such a way that you'll then have DRS for the next straight so you can get back past him. And in fact, Max executed that successfully the first time he, he actually did let Lewis by later on, like six or seven laps later. So there's a lot going on there, in, in, including the fact that Max and I think Red Bull thought that if they didn't let Lewis by, they might get just a five-second time penalty. So Max tried, after they had the collision, Max tried to, to pull a five-second gap, but wasn't able to do so, even with Lewis's damaged wing. So there was a lot of efforts to win the race in a, I would consider, a fairly underhand manner, to be honest. Right. And I think the critical point was, Red Bull Racing was making the point that Max was slowing down and Lewis was slowing down with him. But what's confusing to me is if Lewis is slowing down with him, why would Lewis then hit him? If they were both already slowing down, why would Lewis then would then hit him if there wasn't a change in acceleration and then a change again? Do you see what I'm saying? Like something was inherently amiss. Even if you sweep away all the other things we talk about, who was told what, when, virtual safety car, all these types of things, Hamilton was slowing down with Max, and then all of a sudden the amount of deceleration changed. Something in the deceleration changed at least once, and that's what caused Hamilton to hit Max because if they were both slowing down together, why would Lewis run into the back of Verstappen? It's obviously there's no race strategy benefit to Lewis to do that. The way physics works states that there had to be some sort of change in acceleration to cause Lewis to collide into Max Verstappen that way. That That's what just kept sticking with me. Yeah, and that's what the stewards... The stewards spent a lot of time deliberating that particular incident and they looked at data from both cars and they they actually announced when they gave Verstappen the penalty that the reason why he was given the penalty was because they could see on his telemetry that he had decelerated significantly prior to the crash. And, you know, Lewis jinx tries to jink left to avoid, you know, hitting him, um, but they're too close together and obviously he didn't have enough time. And so that's why his front wing hit Max's left rear tyre. But ultimately, it was that sudden extra deceleration that caused the collision. And what's odd about that whole incident is that Max then guns it. It's not, it's not like he continues to, to slow down and allow Lewis to pass. He's like, well, great, you've hit me now, so I'm off. And, and he, he goes off like a scalded cat. And as I said, look, you know, he's really trying to pull a lead on, on Lewis as if he's anticipating a time penalty. And he needs to he needs to build the margin. And luckily for him, you know, the Mercedes, even with a with a fairly secondhand front wing, was still quicker than him. And here we are, just as you mentioned, you know, a few laps later, Max did let him by, passed him right back with uh, the whole getting the draft and using the DRS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hamilton was able to eventually get around him on the racetrack in addition to 
uh, Verstappen having that five-second penalty. And then uh, Verstappen really lost grip in the medium in his medium tires. That was another controversy that was going on. So that initial red flag and all these kind of things. Well, Verstappen ended up on new mediums, I think, after the second red flag. And uh, there was a lot of confusion about would those mediums last. And seems like they didn't at the end after all. The other thing to note there that's quite important, I think, and, and to be fair to Verstappen, is that when Lewis made his pass, that he ultimately was able to keep the lead for the rest of the race. He forced Verstappen wide. This is at last turn, turn 27. So he he dives down the inside. He then unceremoniously forces Verstappen off the track um, onto obviously the dirty runoff area uh, to give himself a better run, Lewis a better run down the start finish straight so he could hold on to to the lead. And Lewis got uh, a warning for that. He got a black and white checkered flag for that. So I think part of Red Bull's argument is, well, you've penalized Max for the term one incident where he forces Lewis off, but yet you haven't penalized in the same scenario, uh, Lewis for, for forcing Max off. And I do think they've got a point there. Um, you know, I know why Lewis did it. And that's something we see a lot. We've seen a lot, particularly at the German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, where the driver will go down the inside and then run out to the edge of the track, forcing whoever they're trying to overtake wide to give them to better uh, to give them a better corner exit speed, and so they can hold on to the position. It's, it's a very typical maneuver, and I think that's where this grey area of what's acceptable and what isn't really needs to be to be sorted out. Um, and again, if you if there'd been gravel on the exit at that turn twenty seven then that would have been illegal and Hamilton would have been penalised. So they've, they've created a really messy situation with the rules. So I can, I can see it, Red Bull's argument. I can see why they feel aggrieved. Uh, ultimately, in the, in the balance in my mind, you know, Verstappen did more things to Lewis than the other way around. But even so, Lewis isn't, isn't completely guilt-free in this situation. And I think all we really want is a great race between these two guys who are both driving brilliantly we just want a clean race we want to see who can come out without penalty without you know any sort of shenanigans and who's going to be crowned you know 2021 world champion i don't want the finale to go to a to the stewards room and i don't want someone to be you know punted off the track either i want this to be a clean fight but it doesn't look like we're going to get it honestly no we're we're not (laughs) I mean, the chances of something happening are just just so explosively high now. We've got a reconfigured Abu Dhabi Grand Prix circuit. Whether that will improve the racing or not is TBD. But what we also have is a driver championship where Lewis Hamilton and uh, Max Verstappen are tied on points. So... We've done 21 races, and uh, that means F all because because they're now even in points, 0-0. Now, that's not entirely true. Max Verstappen is one win up on Lewis uh, at this moment. Am I correct? I think so. Exactly, yeah. It's 9-8 to Verstappen, yeah. So if Lewis Hamilton were to win the race, that would tie 9-9, but Lewis would also get the points, so it would not matter point is, if if the two of them crashed into each other and neither scored points, Max Verstappen would be world champion um, because he has the tiebreaker number of race wins. So, assuming one of them collects a single point more than the other, that's going to be the world champion. 
it's gotten to this weird, weird, and so unfortunately unnecessary place. There's plenty of great racing going on. As you've stated, you know, Max pulled off some amazing moves. Qualifying on Saturday, what he was making that car do was insane. And uh, all the way to the last corner. And then uh, then we're dealing with this. We don't need... We don't need reality TV drama added to it. We can just have the good <laughs> racing and be good. You know, that's getting insane. And the words between Toto Wolf and Christian Horner are getting more vitriolic. I mean, it's just, I'm sorry, hyperbolic. And it's just, uh, I'm getting fed up with this unnecessary drama when we have so much great racing without all this other nonsense going on. And let me just quickly say real quick, before I hand it over to you, um, Valtteri Botas right at the very end was able to get Ocon, so it was Mercedes 1-3. So in the Constructors' Championship, Mercedes is in a very comfortable place, but then in the Drivers' Championship, we have what we have. Yeah, Mercedes 20, 28 points ahead, so it looks like, barring a calamitous Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, they'll probably be Constructors' Champions this year. But you talked about the words exchanged between Horner and Wolf. I mean, Christian Horner didn't didn't uh, hold back on his assessment of Massey. I was pretty stunned by that. And again, you know, Michael Massey isn't one of the stewards. He isn't determining the penalties that were meted out to Verstappen. So just to reiterate, Verstappen got a five-second penalty for cutting the turn one uh, corner to, to, to keep the lead from Hamilton. Um, and then not giving the place back immediately. So he got the first penalty for that, and then he got the 10-second penalty for the attempted, what you know, slowing down to let Hamilton pass, but then causing a collision. So it was firmly placed on Verstappen's door, that, that incident. And so that's, he got a combined 15-second penalty. Now, fortunately for Max, you know, that still meant he, he finished second. So really those penalties were, were nothing. You know, I mean, he, he wasn't going to win the race because, as you said, his mediums had gone off. Lewis still had plenty of pace with on the hard tyres to the end of the, the Grand Prix, setting fastest lap comfortably in the closing laps. So, you know, Max didn't, you know, got away with a lot there, frankly. Two penalties. He got some penalty points on his licence, but that's not going to affect him for this year. You know, he, he doesn't have a grid penalty for Abu Dhabi, and nor, nor would we want one, really. I mean, nobody wants to see the, the championship decided in the stewards' room. But, you know... It, Although he got meted out a fairly hefty penalty, it doesn't really count for anything. So therefore, he got off scot-free, effectively. And he battled hard and, and still got a second, you know, good second place. So all in all, it was extraordinary, really an extraordinary race. And it's hard to see, as we've said, it's hard to see how you know, it's not going to just continue to get more incendiary as we go into the, into the final race of the season. It's unfortunate and it's frustrating. I just, I can't help but think about of some fundamental truths going on here. If the racetrack limits were defined by grass, gravel, and concrete, we would not have half of these issues. Well, we have, though. I mean, so first of all, I, I, I think it's very tempting to say that, but, but we and have yeah, had issues. Oh, it felt, and it felt Where? good to say, too, Chris. You, you should try it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, car, cars have been pushed off into gravel traps, right? Cars have been pushed off into walls before now. I mean, it, right. it just but then happens. they're done, and the consequences are obvious. But, like, you know, the stuff that Max Verstappen's doing where he runs himself on the road to then run other cars off the road, that, that would not happen. Or 
it would happen once <laughs> and the consequences would be clear and obvious. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting. It, you, you mentioned to me the other day that you watched the Schumacher film and one of the, the most extraordinary pieces of that movie is they do go into some detail about the 97 title decider where Schumacher decides to, to try and take off Jacques Villeneuve um, and is unsuccessful and ultimately gets disqualified from the championship for that effort. Now, you know, Max has not descended to that level yet. But one thing that, that interests me about that, that whole story with Schumacher is that at the time when he came into the pits, Schumacher honestly believed that he, that Villeneuve had been the one to blame, that, that he himself had done nothing wrong. And it was only after calming down and watching the video footage did he, did he actually realize that, no, it was, it was him that was at fault. And you kind of wonder if something, you know, Max, when he, when he has a chance to sort of calm down a little bit and review the race, may want to reconsider some of his actions. I mean, that, again, nothing was that heinous. But honestly, do you, you want to be known as a great racing driver and you want to be known as an uh, you know, uncompromising one. And, and a great overtaker, but you really don't want to be winning titles where there's a you know forever a question mark or a cloud hanging over it. I don't. He's too good a driver. He doesn't need to descend. Well, and, and just to be clear, so was Schumacher, but but he did. But yet, yeah, I don't want Verstappen to descend to that level. It would yeah. be a shame for me. He, he needs. He's had a great year. He's driven brilliantly at many races. You know, if he's going to be world champion, he should be world champion in the right way, in, in my mind. And I think, you know, I would be comfortable with that. But if he wins the title by taking Lewis out, it'll forever be unsavory. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And, uh, yeah, the whole thing is frustrating because he's proven to be a fantastic overtaker. So he's one of those guys where on tracks that are, quote unquote, difficult to pass on, he still finds opportunities and, and does so cleanly. Yeah. When you can do it cleanly, why do you also lower yourself to these obviously intentional aims to just get other drivers off the track? This is what frustrates me. If you can do it the right way, why do you then still also do it the wrong way? No, I completely see. I completely see your point. And and also, you know, what he's saying to the press is, look, I don't need to win the title this year. He's, he's trying to act as if it doesn't really matter and that he'll have other opportunities. And yet his on-track behavior is suggesting otherwise, that he's literally desperate to win the title this year. That's a shame that he's, he feels the need to, to go that, that far. Because prior to Brazil, I think you know, most impartial people would say that on balance, he probably deserved the title this year. He'd driven you know, some sublime races. And this could sully the whole, the whole image of this season if he's not careful. So Max Verstappen was voted driver of the day. <laughs> yes. At Saudi Arabia. I, we're in this weird we're in this weird place where there's this kind of quasi like American politics going on where there's two sides forming. And it seems like more and more if you're on the one guy's side, you're on that side completely. You're on the others, you're on the others completely. Do you see that forming as well? I mean, as you rightly stated, you know, Verstappen did do some brilliant driving in the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. It was just mixed in with some abhorrent driving next to it. But how do you feel about how fans are reacting? I mean, I've seen reactions on Twitter, on Facebook, 
and then obviously the fan voted in racer of the day. So uh, what what do you see in terms of those two sides building up? Yeah, I mean, obviously you've got your, your Verstappen camp and you've got your Hamilton camp. And I think, you know, unfortunately those guys... Uh, those people are generally and, and know, briefly in, which in, camp are you in chris i'm confused i don't know well look i i, I, I fan. <laughs> so look you know i think it's obvious that i'm a hamilton fan but what i'm also more so is a motor racing fan and the the joy i felt watching verstappen try and pull off that pole lap and i didn't want him to get pole but i could appreciate what he was doing because it was so brilliant and if he'd won the pole position which honestly you know he really deserved based on that and Hamilton's lap was pretty darn good too right what we saw was two phenomenal qualifying laps by two great racing drivers that had pushed each other up up a level exactly yeah and if Verstappen had been able to complete that lap you've got no alternative but to take your hat off and say that was amazing congratulations Right now, let's see if you can pull off fifty of those the following day. That's what that's what I want to see, I, I, and I do admire and appreciate Verstappen. He's a great racing driver, and so even though I have a bias towards Hamilton, no doubt, I still, I, as I've said earlier, if, if Verstappen wins the title this year, it's because he deserves to, because he's driven brilliantly, and I'll accept that even as a Hamilton fan. And I hope that other people can do the same, you know, regardless of the outcome, because what we've enjoyed this season has been a fantastic spectacle of great racing by and large and all i i don't want it to happen is for it to be ruined by an on-track incident where one or other of them takes the other out i mean that would be sad ending to a great season the pros senna battles were phenomenal but you know the senna driving straight into prost at suzuka in the 89 finale was was tragic oh, sorry in 90 it was 90 1990 i correct myself there was very sad and there was a lot of history behind that which we don't need to go into but ultimately you know that was an unsatisfactory conclusion to that championship and i don't want to see the same this year and it just reminds us how truly the best champion we've ever seen was nico rosberg now was there (laughs) anything else about this grand prix that you want to touch on before we move on yeah there's a couple of other things to highlight so i think danny Danny Ricardo had a good good weekend. Uh, top five. Poor, yeah, top five after qualifying, only 11th. So he, he did a good job to take advantage of all the restarts um, and be, you know, finish ahead of the two Ferraris. Yep. Uh, not that that really helped the McLaren's position in the constructors. I think Ferrari will definitely come third uh, this year. But it does keep things interesting on the driver's side. You've got Leclerc on 158, Norris on 154, and Carlos Sainz on 149.5. So any one of those really could finish fifth in the driver's uh, championship. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out uh, this weekend. And I thought, um, you know, there was some some decent racing lower down the order. I thought, you know, Gasly had a good weekend, finishing sixth. I thought the Sunoda battle with Vettel was quite amusing the way they they <laughs> collided. Um, and Ocon, um, Ocon deserves an attaboy. You know, even though he lost oh, the podium yeah. spot right at the very end, Valta, uh, Valtteri Bottas pipped him right at the checkered flag. But boy, that was super close, and he drove really well. 
Yeah, no doubt. I agree with you. Good for you to mention that. Yeah, I mean, that's a strong fourth place for Alpine and, and Ocon. Yeah, really good. And, and you know, you've got to put that in contrast with Alonso's weekend, where he qualified 13th and finished 13th and seemed to be really struggling around that track. So Ocon, that was a standout weekend for him. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, also, I thought Giovinazzi had a good weekend, qualified uh, in the top 10 and finished ninth. So, yeah. you know, he's, he's making the most of his last couple of uh, F1 drives. So uh, fair play to uh, Antonio. And the other thing, you know, I, I was heartened to see the, the Frank Williams tributes, the, the stickers that adorned uh, most of the cars on the grid um, and, the, and the pre-race uh, minute silence. I thought uh, that, was, uh, that was the least F1 could do, but they did, a, they did, you know, they did it and it was, uh, it was good. Yeah, uh, you know, Frank Williams... The, I think we're going to talk about him more as we have a little bit of time to reflect on, just as you touched on on our last episode, the era of racing he started versus the era of racing that he left. And it's just how um, just amazing how long he was able to stay competitive throughout all that, even as just the dynamics were shifting around so fundamentally. We do have the finale, the final race coming up in just a few days' time. It will be in Abu Dhabi. It will be on my birthday, December 12th, and it will be the title decider. Uh, exactly how? <laughs> um, oh, man. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we get a clean race here, and it's, 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 it is still entirely possible that we will, but this was a bad opening act to the finale of the championship, so hopefully... Hopefully the second act pulls it together. We have a good intermission. But that is not all because I did have a wonderful conversation with uh, Porsche Ambassador Patrick Long. Exactly why I'm calling him Porsche Ambassador and not Porsche Factory Driver will be made clear in just a moment's time. Here it is. Patrick Long, it's been a little while. So good to be able to talk to you again. How are you? I'm doing well, man. Good to uh, reconnect. Yeah, man. Reconnect and, uh, you know, just... uh, having a moment of like off season relaxation, kind of, sort of, how was your season? Uh, you were racing with the uh, right motorsports and some strong showings at uh, big events, but uh, not any marquee wins maybe that uh, you were hoping to get. So h- how would you rate your season? Yeah. The, the off season started a little later this year uh, because of yeah. the schedule yeah. shift with Lamar. Uh, we ended up doing the petite a month later uh, than normal uh, for our finale. So it was wild to be, you know, after NASCAR and after IndyCar, everybody had kind of closed up shop and uh, we were still racing at IMSA. It changed the conditions, the weather, and of course the time change uh, meant that we had an extra hour of dark running. Uh, it was a good oh, way to right finish. after daylight. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I think the race starts a little later than it used to. I, I remember it starting, I believe, around 11 a.m. It now starts at noon and runs for 10 hours, plus the time change, plus the later season and, and colder weather. So it was uh, an interesting race. Everybody's on a hard tire in our class in GTD. So um, the outlaps were pretty treacherous, even in the daytime, but certainly at night. And to finish off the season, we capitalized and won the endurance championship, which focuses on Sebring, Daytona, Watkins, Glen, and Petit Le Mans. That's a consolation to not winning the overall championship, which was, of course, everybody's goal. Um, but what a wild way to finish the season. We ended up losing a car, uh, second practice on Thursday, getting hit by a no prototype. No kidding. Oh, I didn't know that. And we were packing up 
um, Thursday night. We missed night practice. We missed all of practice, basically. And uh, we were packing up, heading heading home with our heads in our hands. And um, at the last second, we got a phone call. Someone stepped up to the plate and, and offered to help us finance and, and find a car. And uh, we got a car to the track just in time for qualifying, sort of 24 hours later on, on Friday. So all in all, to come out of there with a top five finish and to win the endurance championship was a great way to finish the season. But yeah, we wanted more wins this year. Uh, we had a great streak of podiums and it was just a really tough season. There were four cars that would have won the championship last year, mathematically, that were all in for the hunt in the last race this year. So it was just a much wow. more competitive season. And it just goes to show where GT3 racing and sports car racing on this continent is heading. It's it's going into a great era with, you know, 10, 12, 15 cars on a weekend that can win. Now, was it a consolation to make you feel a little better that a Porsche did win GTD or was that a little bit of a twist of the knife that it was not your Porsche? I mean, I'd lie if there, if I said there wasn't some sibling rivalry, but right. the way that Porsche runs uh, our programs and the way that Lawrence Vantor from the nine car in, in FAF and myself uh, at the 16 car in Wright, we're both factory drivers. Um, so we have some, let's say, meetings and discussions and incentives to help each other um, win and to help capitalize and and close a manufacturer's championship for Porsche. And yeah, we'd love for it to be us uh, in the opposite position, winning overall versus endurance. But we got both and the endurance champ, or, or sorry, and the manufacturer's championship. So it was a great result for Porsche. And after this many years, um, you sort of remove your own personal desires and personal accolades and realize that you're there uh, for the brand and, and it was mission accomplished. Yeah, and that's great. And I'm really happy to hear that. You have some real success, objective, put it on a graph kind of successes to go with this season because this is kind of a bittersweet season for you because it is your last season as a full-time factory driver with Porsche, which you've had a long, long run with them. I mean, decades long run with Porsche, but at the same time, You've been racing since you were a kid. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for providing such fantastic racing for us to watch for such a long time. I want to also say thank you for being such a fantastic ambassador of America, of the United States of America, to the international community, and to show just the, you know, the breadth that uh, Americans can have as well. So just huge appreciation for you representing our nation and you representing the brand so well for so long, but also what are your feelings going into this like shift in your career? Honestly, I'm excited being a racing driver and being somebody who's excelled behind the wheel. Um, you have to put so much into that discipline that you don't always expand your horizons and, and learn about much else because you're so sort of tunnel vision in your craft. And about five years ago, um, I started opening up my viewfinder and looking around at the world and realizing how much experience and how many great people uh, we have as drivers an opportunity to work alongside and to seek advice and to network. And 
then when you add Portia into uh, the equation and, and what Portia is um, to me personally and, and what Portia is as a brand to the outside world, whether they're Portia files or not, it's such a crazy opportunity that I could have never dreamt of to work for them um, as a racing driver for two decades and now to have the chance to expand and work inside the company, both in motorsport and in PR and marketing with an ambassador role. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm relieved. I'm proud of, of mm. what we've done on the track, but I feel like motorsport for so many people, whether they're in the car or out of the car, it's a discipline that provides a foundation to do so much more. And really my goal now is to contribute in other ways and maybe with greater scale um, where I can build teams and work inside of strategies and come up with programs, events, product that will make a difference. And part of my initiative personally uh, with Lufka Cold and some of the other companies that I'm working inside of is really to create a platform for the next generation to enjoy both vintage and modern automobiles. And that's not always easy, as I'm sure you've talked about on your show. So um, it's beyond racing. But uh, for right now, uh, to be a, a little bit more descriptive and to the point, I'll be working uh, with PMA Porsche Motorsport North America in Southern California, um, helping the new CEO, Folker, um, get embedded into the automotive culture um, here in, in North America. He's coming over from a kind of two-decade career in Stuttgart, working inside of uh, Porsche Motorsport, and then to work with the team in Atlanta at PCNA, the importers of the car, um, Porsche Cars North America, and to continue working with the PR and, and marketing team where I met you. Um, it's such a great honor and, and so much fun because I get to hoon some cars around the track. I get to work with amazing and passionate, experienced journalists who are great drivers and um, also to be at auto shows and to be at shows uh, like the Quail or Amelia Island and to talk new and old cars, um, to drive these cars and to help share the experience. We have so much exciting product coming down the pipe that I feel like there's an endless amount of work because Stuttgart and Zuffenhausen and Weissach just keep pushing amazing race and road cars across the pond over here. And we've got lots of stuff to debut and play with. And man, what a, a wild month it's been in, in rolling out some really fun new product for the street. Well, and we're in a big transitional phase with automobiles, you know, and motorsport is going in that direction as well. And uh, Porsche is definitely not holding back with uh, different approaches to new powertrains and all these other aspects. So to hear that you're going to have input in that is definitely reassuring that uh, Porsche will stay on the right path of keeping the driver engaged, regardless of the other attributes of the car that are that are trending our direction. What I first think about are names like Hurley Haywood, uh, Walter Roll, uh, Hans Stuck, Mark Weber. To be in that group that's cool, man. I mean, well, well deserved. But is that part of the excitement for you to be like part of that just like group of Porsche ambassadors that uh, get to travel around and showcase these products? Absolutely. You know, the Derek Bells, the Brian Redmonds, the Hurley Haywoods, Walter Worlds, those are um, legends of automobile across the board. Jörg Bergmeister, myself, Timo Bernhard, Mark Lieb, uh, Mark Weber, as you mentioned, are sort of the next generation um, that Porsche has given us an opportunity to learn under some of the icons and legends and to continue to tell the stories of motorsport, both 
modern and um, our past in the cars that we've raced over the years. And if you look at someone like Walter, his accolades racing and in development with Porsche outside of motorsport, it's such a cool fusion because you're keeping your hand in the legacy of Porsche motorsport, but you're also extending the storyline between street to track and track to street, which has always been Porsche's DNA. Um, They've never wavered from motorsport as um, their development platform, as their marketing platform, and just who they are. They're racers. These cars started uh, with numbers on their doors 75 years ago, and we want to continue that legacy and, and that tradition. And I think even with uh, electrification and hybrid technology and evolution of motorsport, there's so many cool stories um, that that I was able to be a part of um, in the formative years. GT3R hybrid, for instance, the first hybrid GT car to really race in professional motorsport. That car will soon be sort of a, a pioneer and, and it will feel old. It's coming up on, I think, more than 10, it's actually more than 10 years ago, but yeah. let's think about this in 10 or 20 years, what that car will mean uh, to where motorsport is likely heading. And I think it will be awesome to have a flywheel technology, electric combustion engine car that I was able to race at the 24 hours of Nürburgring and over in Zhuhai in China. So yeah, to, continuing to drive these cars to celebrate um, the motorsport side, but also to look at uh, what it's pushing the envelope on the streetcar side. If you look at the new GT4 RS and where the evolution of mid-engine technology with the Cayman platform is headed, uh, 718, of course, is a, a, a number that means a lot to uh, the vintage racing uh, heritage of Porsche, but also in modern day. So it's it's great times, um, and I'm excited for the future. The future has the potential to be really exciting and in a positive way. Uh, a lot of people just get grumpy and mourn about it, but I think you articulated very well that there could be a lot of good ahead of us. But I do want to take a step back. You've won Le Mans twice. You've won the 12 Hours of Sebring, I think, three times. You've won uh, 24 Hours of Daytona. You've had all kinds of success at these big marquee events. What are the events that really stand out? Man, um, I've been very fortunate to drive, uh, I think, in over 20 countries and to see pretty much every racetrack that I could have ever dreamt of or that I've been watching since I was a kid, waking up early to watch Formula One. Bathurst had to be uh, one of the most daunting and epic experiences as a driver. Certainly the nerve of uh, That, and that um, one's intimidating to watch. I can't, yeah. I can't imagine I tell- driving it. I tell stories about Bathurst and people don't believe me. I told them that one of the most insanely fearful moments I've ever had in my life is racing at sunup starting at 5 a.m. in the dark at Bathurst and racing into sunrise uh, right when the kangaroos decide that they want to cruise through the racetrack and (laughs) they're jumping nine foot fences and they're going on the racetrack and taking race cars out right on the spot eliminating race cars and I'm I'm glad that nobody was injured uh, while I took part in that race. But when you saw a yellow flag, I forget what the signal was that it was a kangaroo that had cleared a fence and was looking to jump on the track. They didn't stop the race. They just kind of gave you a, a special yellow flag warning that there might be a 250 pound <laughs> rodent jumping onto the track. And for those of you who haven't been to Australia, they don't look at kangaroos like us Americans do. They're they're no delicacy there. They're they're a, a pest, a big pest. But anyways, um, Bathurst, amazing Nurburgring, Norsch life uh, telling wise old tales of 
um, limping to a secret place in the woods because the lap is so long, ditching the car behind a wall, pulling out the tires and air jack, changing the tire myself because I was so far from the pit lane that I couldn't get back, and then re-entering, jumping back in the car, putting my gear back on, and re-entering the race and getting back to the pit lane. The Wild West, Le Mans hitting a bird on the Molson straightaway. I mean, all these just wild stories, but in, in between the wild stories, the successes of winning class in all of those races... Um, it does mean something. It's not everything, but having um, those trophies on the mantle is really what it will be um, 10 or 20 years from now when I'm kind of uh, an afterthought. So for me to have those mementos um, and really the relationships that were forged, uh, a lot of the the greats within inside of Porsche that I've had a, a chance to work with as engineers or designers have since retired, but I'm still in touch with those guys, Roland Kuzmal, Norbert Singer. Um, these are people that um, paved the way in the Group C era, in the 959 Dakar era, and raced all the way up into the early 2000s when I was still, or, or when I had become active uh, with Porsche. So um, the relationships are something that definitely I'll carry forward um, as a as big of a success as any victory or, or trophy. But when it comes down to it, I'm 40 and to step out of the race car full time and to make a conscious decision that I'm going to prioritize other parts of my contribution to motorsport and to Porsche. Some people ask me why, why do that um, at this age? Don't you have another five or 10 years in you? And my answer was, I think I do physically, mentally, I still feel at the top of my game, I'm, I'm still hungry and ornery when I'm in the car and battling for position, but it's time to, to turn that focus racing doesn't owe me anything. There's not a certain race that I wish I could have capitalized on or taken place, taken part in. And so I'm, I'm at peace with all the opportunity. So grateful for all the opportunity and, and getting to race, not only in sports car racing, but V8 supercars and NASCAR and off-road down in Baja. Um, all those opportunities stemmed from uh, being a Porsche factory driver for 19 years. And as I say, uh, I'm just excited to enter my third decade with a company that I really love and and owe most everything to. And yet, your racing career started when you were a child. I don't remember exactly what age, but obviously before you were 10, I'm nearly certain of that. And you grew up into Formula Cars. It was actually Formula Cars and the Red Bull American and F1 Challenge that got you the attention of Porsche in the first place and took you down this path you ended up following you're essentially your entire life has been racing so how do you how do you make that switch to say part-time like how 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 does that happen because there's that itch to scratch and you still feel like you said mentally and physically there what what do you do to shift your focus and feel content with that transition yeah it's a good question i mean the the real talk answer the behind the curtain answer i think it probably extends to other athletics and professional sport but maybe into general business as well is when you start doing something and applying yourself to something and you you really give your whole life to it um since i was six years old so 34 of my 40 years i've six really years old. there it is i knew it was somewhere in there I really just I have identified and connected with uh, being behind the wheel. That's what I excelled at. That's what made me happy. That's all I ever wanted to do. And for lots of racing drivers, uh, it's a parallel story. And racing is life and everything in between is just waiting and all of those taglines. But the reality is, is that after you do anything for 30 plus years, there's some repetition, um, there is some complacency, there is some fear that slips in that says, 
in your head, you know, well, this is all I've ever done. So this is all I know. Or other drivers have come up to me and said, how do you know when it's time to do something else? Or what, what do you think I should do? I've only ever raced. I don't really have another skill set. I don't really have another network. I'm not happy other than being at the racetrack. You know, there's lots of things that people have said to me since, since I kind of made an announcement that I was going to reshift my focus. And those people sort of live in silence because they don't want people to second guess their commitment to the sport or, or their speed or their confidence. And um, I think that happens or, or probably exists a lot in pro sports and, and in all athletics, when you take it to such a serious level where it does become your life. And then the answer really becomes understanding what else makes you tick, what else makes you inspired to wake up before the alarm clock, whatever else makes you feel as though you're contributing and making a, a, a difference and joining a team that makes you feel um, as inspired as a racing team. And it's individual for everybody. For me, uh, it, it was about more creativity. I wanted to be able to design. I wanted to creative direct. I wanted to um, just create something that hadn't existed before, whether that was a automotive experiential event or a piece of clothing. I think that working on the other side of the wall in race teams is very inspiring for me because when you have a lot of people uh, who are looking to you to give them direction or to give them idea or to give them strategy, it's personally more fulfilling than just going out and being one person and doing mm. what you can do with your hands and feet. When you can work uh, with a whole group of people and uh, align people and, and get a focus and, and have everybody contributing and high-fiving at the end, those are amazing parallels that motorsport um, offer, but other types of work and business offer as well. And I think that we all are different personalities. Some of us are great working independently. Others really need that team ambiance and, and energy. And so, yeah, I think it's an individual pull for everybody. But personally, I'm going to spend the next 24 months contributing to different uh, organizations and groups and teams and consulting and asking myself uh, where where my next calling is. I, I'm not completely sure, but I definitely know that there'll be an aspect of motorsport. There'll be an aspect of vintage and heritage. There'll be an aspect of, of evolution and um, new exciting product and different ways to uh, look at both track and street um, as we evolve in how we propel these vehicles. So yeah, even esports I'm interested in. So I have an esports team uh, and, and we're competing in the world you know, RX. And so there's lots of different ideas. I just have to narrow my focus and get everybody in, in my mind aligned. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. It's, it's not a, it's not a lack of ideas. It's a, it's having to choose which one sounds like, which is a fantastic problem to have really. It's funny to me to hear you say this though, because, you know, as a full-time driver, you kept yourself plenty busy with other things. Luftekult is a fantastic example. That's not something you're involved in. That's something you started. And uh, that's a, it's a very cool event that seems to be growing every year. It happened even through the pandemic we've been going through. You've been finding ways to put it together. And uh, you've come up with, a, I think it's a, one or even two coffee table books now uh, that goes with it. And that's while you were a full-time factory racing driver. So uh, I, I can only imagine what ideas you're going to go after now that your priorities have shifted a little bit. But 
this was not just an interview to hear how your life's going and how this season finished, stuff like that. This is also a job opportunity, Patrick Long. I want to hire you to join my racing team to co-drive with me. And all you have to do is pay for it and <laughs> fly me to places and coach me and also get the car and keep it maintained. I think it's a fantastic opportunity. It'll really hit all those different points you've been looking for and uh, keep you behind the wheel, assuming you can afford it. What what an honor to um, design and build uh, a race team and to support yeah. you in your endeavors and your travel expenses. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I need to fly first class or private. Yeah. Do I do I need to give you an answer now on the air, or can I get back to you tomorrow? No, noodle it. I understand. There's some big okay. big opportunities to think about here, but I mean, you know, I think I think I already know the answer because how can you turn such a thing down? You know, this is your opportunity. I think your 19 plus years at Porsche has proven your metal for team random guy with a podcast. No, look, I've always enjoyed the fun nature that you bring and also the serious talks about uh, your racing antics and, and successes in, in past. I look forward to uh, joining you for a race, maybe not a full season. We'll just have to hash out what it is. Well, Patrick, I, I just one more time just want to sincerely thank you for such a long and storied career with such an iconic brand and doing, giving, doing the brand justice and, uh, again, doing uh, our nation so much justice. I really appreciate it. And thank you as always for joining me for another great conversation. You know, we don't know much about what you're going to be doing in the future, but I have a feeling it's going to be pretty cool. And I'm definitely excited to talk more uh, as things arise. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for having me. I'm certainly not uh, putting my helmet up on the shelf. There's no R in my announcement. I, I look forward to just doing all kinds of new wild and different types of racing and uh, trying to help uh, the next generation come up as well. So uh, thanks for having me on and uh, we'll keep in touch on our, our racing story that we're going to carry forward. I love it. I love it. It is always great to talk to Patrick Long. He's got so many interesting things to say about such a wide variety of topics. So he's no longer going to be a full-time factory driver with Porsche, but he is going to be no less busy, I am certain, and no less interesting to speak with as well. So that, uh, I, I always appreciate getting a chance to speak with him. Now, it is not quite to end the show just, just yet because I've got a YouTube video to talk about. Yes, I drove the latest Ford F-150. This is a $75,000 truck, but it is a $75,000 truck with massaging seats and a 7.2 kilowatt generator in back. <laughs> this thing is crazy. And it, it's super useful in a remarkably wide variety of ways. So I have to say, I was very impressed with uh, Ford's 14th generation full-size pickup truck. Would that be your tow car of choice for your uh, weekend racer to, to Grattan Raceway? If I had $75,000 on a Trek to pull um, money that I would need to buy for a, a, a track car and trailer? Yes. <laughs> 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 so if a pile of money fell in my driveway, yes. But, I mean, me being me, I would get a used F-150, but, you know, whatever. Well, the way used car prices are going, <laughs> to oh, yeah, pay no more kidding. than 75 Jeez. grand. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's, it, it is an impressive truck. What, what impresses me the most about what 
Ford has done with this truck is just all the different ways they tried to add utility to this thing. Uh, none of it's free, but you get a panoramic moonroof. You get nice seats, the massaging seats, all that. You also get a work table built into the center console. You get uh, AC plugs and uh, USB plugs strewn all over the car. You have measuring tape built into the back of the tailgate of the truck, which opens with a solenoid and can lift and uh, drap electronically like it's on the key fob. I mean, it's just this really impressive mix of luxury, convenience, and utility. You know, I used the generator to power my chainsaw to cut down a, a dead tree. And then you threw it in the bed and hauled it away like the real man you are, right? Right, right, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it was a fun video to put together. It's a long video just because there's so much stuff to talk about. But, you know, this, it, uh, this is a fun fact for you, Chris. Did you know that this truck has 570 pound-feet of torque at its peak, which is two pound-feet of torque more than that McLaren 720S we uh, drove not long ago? Wow, that's uh, and is that going to be more or less torque than the the Lightning version gets? Oh, probably less than the Lightning. Electric motors are very effective at torque. Uh-huh. Yeah, I have to say that's one of the EVs I'm most excited for the launch of. You know, we got a lot of startups coming out with a very you know variety of fairly interesting trucks, but the F one fifty Lightning does look like a really cool uh, EV version of the F one fifty, and and it's. Uh, price is rather attractive compared to some of its competitors and in terms on on the marketing side in terms of rebranding a name rebranding the ford f-150 lightning name so so much better than adding mustang to its mocky electric suv so um (laughs) you know there's a there's a lot of wins about the ford f-150 lightning absolutely But I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcast. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Oh, Chris, we should have a drinking game where you have to take a shot every time I promote a YouTube video. (laughs) <laughs> and you should get a shot every time Max gets a five second time penalty oh boy <laughs> deal <laughs> I'm Robin Warner goodbye goodbye